we have got so much to talk about on this week's edition of the OHL podcast that there's no time for jibber jabber. There's no time for pleasantries. Let's dive right in. Dan Mahar over there. Find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell at Farwell underscore OHL. The first weekend of the playoffs in the book and so much to talk about around the league, including one of the most curious decisions I think I've ever seen in my life out of the league offices. We're going to get to all of that. But Dan, where else do we start, bias notwithstanding, other than on the Kitchener Rangers, the number eight seed in the West, being up two games to none, winning both games on the road over the number one seed, Windsor Spitfires. I can't remember who said it, but I saw something on Twitter saying that's easily the biggest story of the playoffs so far. So I'll take that tweeter's word for it, but it's hard to argue when you see the eight seed up to Cobb on the one seed in the West. It is, and it theoretically looks like a really weird story to see this happening. We know how good Windsor is, and you need seed to be up now. Qualify it right off the bat saying it's obviously not over. Windsor is quite capable of winning four or five games. So don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But I have mixed feelings on this one, Mike, because having watched Kitchener's all, Kitchener all year, they vastly underachieved the majority of the year. We we saw that. What they have on paper, this is not an eight seed. It shouldn't be. I know they are. They went in as the eight seed. says it right there on paper. But they're not an eight seed on paper. And Windsor probably is suffering the consequences of that team not getting it together all year and then then making the coaching change and getting things together late in the year wins are probably earned a better matchup than this so uh, but there's not really feeling sorry for anyone come playoff time in the ohl so so we'll, we'll stop right there and just say it's turning into a remarkable story it's just i think i speak on behalf of all kitchener ranger uh fans ranger nation saying that thank goodness we're finally seeing this team play the way they look like they should be able to play on paper. The beat writer for the London Free Press who covers the Knights, who shall remain nameless in this episode, but has been saying to anyone who would listen since last playoff, when the number seven seed Rangers knocked off the number two seed Knights, that it was not an upset at all, considering the state of the Knights lineup, injuries, etc. You can hear that same argument being made this year for the very reasons that you just outlined on paper. Sure. It was an eight seed. Cause that's the number beside their playoff position. But in reality, the Kitchener Rangers team that we have seen through two games in these playoffs is the Kitchener Rangers team that I think many expected to see on a consistent basis since around the Christmas break, because Leighton Moore and Francesco R. Curry came over even before the trade deadline. Danny Jokin was the last piece added, and I think that one came in early January. But anyway, that was why the talk around the league really was nobody wants a piece of the Rangers in the first round because they're going to get a tough matchup if if the team gets it together so to your point and i've heard the frustration from rangers fans where has this been all season long this is the team i expected let me ask you this to play devil's advocate who cares does it matter i mean sure you would have liked to see more wins in the regular season as a fan but if this team continues on this trajectory and knocks off a one seed and then who knows what happens beyond but continues to play like this what the hell difference does it make where they finished in the regular season? Yeah, it's a fair, it's a really fair point. I mean, 
sure they might have carved a little bit of an easier road but essentially you might get a slightly lesser opponent in the first round but once you win the first round you're all into good te- great teams anyway so it, fair and i think when you look at uh windsor and kitchener on paper to me there actually isn't that much separating them windsor has run into a little bit of health trouble at the wrong time perhaps they have a couple players out of the lineup that that would be helpful uh dionisio of course serving the suspension and then i've heard players like Renwick and Wright not playing at hundred percent, which might be factoring in and Kitcher's the opposite side of the coin, Mike, we, they they've kind of gotten healthy at the right time. They haven't had a full lineup all year and now they kind of do. And I think one pick for me, Mike all year was, uh, and it's not a slam on the guys who are in the lineup, but the fourth line for me, wasn't bringing much to the table. Um, they were lacking an element that, that most other contending teams had Kitcher kind of fixed that by moving, you know, Ty Hollett up to the wing. He's adding a physical dimension. He's working hard, banging, getting pucks, turning them over. Trent Swick is probably not a fourth liner, but he is in this lineup with how deep it is. He's been terrific since returning from a long absence. Uh, and then Cameron Mercer slotting in as a fourth line center is a lot better than than higher in the lineup at his uh, age and experience. But that's given the Rangers a fourth line now that does the things you need them to do in the playoffs, which they didn't have all year. So, a bit of a coin flip. Uh, Windsor went south. Kitchener went north. I will add into that uh, a player I think is unheralded to some degree, and that's Adrian Misseljevic for the Kitchener Rangers on the third line, who's just got a kind of tenacity that you like to see. He's got a little bit of speed to burn, and he's filled in there very nicely. But back to your point earlier, too, about the Windsor Spitfires and how banged up they are. I'm hearing the same things. I don't think they're really closely guarded secrets about the health of Renwick and Wright and Nick DeAngelis who came back for game two, but was not there in game one. And we believe to be still pretty banged up. So bad time for Windsor to be battling injuries. And and then uh, probably for me, the most unfortunate situation for the Spitz is the situation in goal where they elected to start 17 year old Joey Costanzo who had won the job down the stretch. I get it. But when you start the untested guy in the playoffs And then in game two, you're kind of forced to make the decision that Mark Savard was forced to make, and that is make the goaltending change. Now you've got Matt Onushka, and I think there's plenty of reason to believe in him. He was the goaltender that helped Windsor all the way to game seven of the OHL final last season. But if Onushka stumbles, oh boy, if you have to go back to the guy that you started with and then said, yeah, you're not doing it for us. I just think it's a really tough spot to be in. Oh, absolutely. And that, and you know, I think you're rolling the dice a little bit when you're relying on a 17 year old goaltender in his first playoffs. And that's not a shot at any of these 17 year old goaltenders. Some of them have been terrific. Some of them might be terrific. Costanzo has been great all year, earned the job. No problem there, but, but it, playoffs are a different animal. You, you, you have a different intensity. Yeah. The top players play more. They, they get on you quicker nerves factor in so i think if we were looking for a a chink in windsor's armor through this coming into the series it might have been that goaltending piece because they're relying on a young kid and then matt anishka had proved himself in last year's playoffs but has not had a stellar campaign lost that job and i'm not sure there's a ton of confidence there right now so that's a big factor because you know that marco costantini on the other end is is playoff proven and i think that's a bit of an edge for kitchener right now this windsor spitfires team 
as you mentioned, is more than capable of winning four out of the next five games. They went on multiple runs of nine and 10 games this season without defeats or consecutive wins. So by no means is anything in this series a certainty. And we're recording just ahead of game number three, which will be a massive game, a pivotal game in this series. Does it go 2-1 or does it go 3 nothing for the Kitchener Rangers? And even if it does go 3 nothing for the Kitchener Rangers, do I have to remind Rangers fans of the 2010 playoffs when they led the Windsor Spitfires three games to none in the Western Conference Final? I don't think I have to remind Rangers fans about that, do I, Dan? <laughs> I, I don't think they want to be reminded of that, Mike. And and, and if I not that I want to dial them down too much for the excitement they felt over two wins, but on the Windsor side, you've also got over 100 goals there and, and Mr. Maggio and Christopoulos who were very quiet in the first two games, and I don't expect they'll continue to be quiet. So, so a great start, but a lot still to play. A really central rink in Kitchener for a lot of our listeners to this podcast, probably central geographically, a couple of games this week at the Memorial Auditorium. You could do a lot worse than watching players like Shane Wright and Francesco Pinelli and Matt Maggio and Francesco Arcuri, and I could keep listing them off. Uh, you know, pay your 25 bucks and enjoy some really quality OHL hockey in a pretty easy to access market. Okay, let's take a look at some of the other things and I'll just throw this at you randomly. Did the Owen Sound attack and Guelph Storm miss their best chances in games number two? Owen Sound scores twice in the final 85 seconds to force overtime, losing to London to go down 2 nothing. Guelph had the lead, lost it in the final two minutes to Sarnia, and Sarnia goes on to win in overtime. Were those maybe the best chances for those two teams, the Storm and the attack? Yeah, I, I I don't think it's over. By uh, you can see from our predictions, we were expecting these series to go in four and five games anyway. But those were really good looks for uh, for those guys. When you put in golf terms, that's like having a two foot putt and, and missing it. So to tie it and get it to a playoff or something. But both those teams put in great efforts. I think the biggest challenge they're facing now is the mental one. When you miss that opportunity, instead of 1-1 coming home, it's 2-0 coming home, and you feel like, yeah, maybe that's as close as we can get against these teams and we just didn't get the bounce. I still think there's a lot of character in both those dressing rooms, though, and I, I don't think they're giving up by any stretch. And I think you're going to see at least one win for each of those teams on home ice. But yeah, they really got to be kicking themselves, especially with Guelph when you have that that late lead and and relinquish it. Because I had a feeling once it's going to overtime in Sarnia, it's most likely going Sarnia's way. And then Owen Sound battled hard, that terrific comeback. Denny Gur had a great chance right before the overtime winner. Um, but hopefully it it gives them a little bit of confidence to say, yes, they can play with these teams. Colby Barlow, a surefire first rounder to the NHL this June banged up or not, back in the Owen Sound lineup, drops the mitts in game one, scores twice in game two. Uh, he might just be elevating his status in a short series with the Owen Sound attack. In the East, Dan, are you as surprised as I am that the Mississauga Steelheads have wrestled home ice advantage away from the North Bay Battalion? Well, I have to say yes, because I predicted a battalion sweep. So that, But that that was, of course, jinxing them. I actually felt guilty about doing that because I've loved what the Mississauga Steelheads have done since the trade deadline. They've just competed each and every night, surprised at least half the time. So I'm not sure why I didn't credit them and give them at least a game or two in this series because they just compete, compete, compete. And you saw James Hardy leading the team like he always does, scoring big goal. And 
yeah. So a surprise for sure. I just thought North Bay is so powerful, but I, I, I'm not that surprised that this Steelheads team has given him a fight. It's uh, it's an impressive group. It's well coached. It makes for a really interesting shift now back into Southern Ontario to the Paramount Fine Food Center for games three and four. But getting the split on the road is exactly what you ask for when you start a playoff series. A couple of series uh, sitting at two Cobb, and that is as we record this, Peterborough up on Sudbury, Saginaw up on Flint. Any surprise for you in those two? To some extent, I, I predicted both series to go seven. So I guess logic would flow that I expected maybe a split in the first two games. Not entirely shocked to see Peterborough up to nothing. Those on paper, they should be, they should win that series. They had home ice advantage. They were tight games. It came down to the wire in both of them. So it's not a mismatch in any regard. So almost a coin flip, whether that was going to be two, nothing or one, one, but a little surprising. Uh, on the other side, I guess I learned not to bet against Chris Lazari. That guy just, man, like that team just performs, 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 and they were the four seed. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. They got both on home ice. I just, I really respect what Flint brings to the table from a skill standpoint. And I was really surprised at how they just got decimated in game one. I did not see that coming. So I uh, thought we might see a much better performance in game two, which we did, but they still didn't get the win. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. So I would say that one's more of a surprise for me, Mike, than the Peterborough one. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I, I credit the Wolves for sticking around like they have. And, you know, the games have been super close, but Peterborough kind of maybe shaking off the, the mental demons because nobody in the press was picking. Well, I shouldn't say they weren't picking them. I, I picked the Peets to, to win the series, but there are a lot of doubters. Let's just put it that way. And I'm sure the Peets can hear those whispers because they're probably a voice above a whisper at some points when you look at the lineup. And we talked about them being an, an enigma similar to the Kitchener Rangers this season. I was equally surprised as you with the commanding win that Saginaw picked up in game one of that series with Flint. So when it shifts back to the Dort, we'll, we'll see, you know, if the Firebirds have a, a little more in the cupboard here, but Interesting. I, I thought that there would be a split in the first two games and that first score really did catch me off guard. Okay. I don't want to be too dismissive of the uh, one eight seed in the East, but I think we're seeing the Ottawa 67s for everything they are credit to Oshawa for bouncing back from a really ugly game one. But this one I, I think is going to be over in pretty short order. Yeah, I, I, which we predicted. I mean, the, and it wasn't a shot on Oshawa. It's just a bit of a mismatch this year. Oshawa went younger this year. Ottawa's a total powerhouse. And to add to add even more fuel to that fire that's charging through uh, that series right now, Jordan Erdl, how do you feel about playing defense? <laughs> the, the, the Oshawa Generals are are so shorthanded. They're, they're using a couple forwards on, on defense, which, I mean, just – should amplify the mismatch, but the game that that happened, it was a three, two game. So you never know. The playoffs always bring a lot of surprises. They bring a lot of, uh, it, it's an opportunity for these guys to really show themselves. And I think we're still seeing a lot of really good things from some of those young generals, but, but yeah, this one will not, will not go in their favor. One of the things that stood out to me in game number two of that series is Logan Morrison scores two of the three goals for the Ottawa 67s. Of course, Logan Morrison was last year's OHL playoff MVP. There's a reason you trade for players like that. James Richmond, or pardon me, James Boyd up in Ottawa did that. 
gets the guy with the proven experience to help his team. That was a wagon all year long with the Ottawa 67s, but that's what you need in the playoffs. And boom, there he is. Peterborough Pete's Avery Hayes acquired from the Hamilton Bulldogs, the defending OHL champs scored both third period goals in game number one to give Peterborough the four two win over the Sudbury Wolves. So those acquisitions turn out to be important acquisitions. Those two stood out to me. I've deliberately left Barry Hamilton until last because that will move us into the second part of our conversation this week on the OHL podcast. And that is around questionable hits. I'm, I'm trying to hold back from using the word dirty, but it will certainly lead to the conversation around how you suspend in the playoffs and what is suspendable. But Barry and Hamilton have already played three games. They will be playing game four on the day that this episode is released. And boy, oh boy, game three was something else. These Hamilton Bulldogs, scrappy, gritty, and not afraid to get in your face. They come back to make it a series now and have a chance to draw even in game four, trailing two games to one. They got crushed in the opener. They made the second game look respectable. So it was a 10-2 loss in game one. It was 6-1 at one point in game two. They come back with a couple of late ones to make it 6-3. But then they turn that 6-3 in their favor in game number three, albeit with a couple of empty netters. But in a game, Dan, that that featured a couple of uh, questionable situations. Yeah, but I give Hamilton a ton of credit here. A young team in that situation takes the Hill Panwar out of their lineup, who's been a beast for them since the trade. All the excuses in the world to fold their tents and go home, but they they kept the game plan really simple on game three. Players in front of the net, pucks to the net, battle along the boards, don't give up that puck easily, be in decent position defensively. It's a, it's a fairly simple recipe if everyone buys in, and Hamilton did that in game three. And and the other component here, too, you referenced the uh, – the questionable hits, Mike. And one of those was by Brant Clark, of course. And he was tossed from that game in the second period. And the Barry Colts are, I think they'd fully admit are a different team without Brant Clark back there. And, and so suddenly we were asking, you know, are there going to be games coming with this? And if he gets suspended, is Hamilton back in this series? And so there's lots of dynamics that play at that series. They're going to make things awfully interesting, awfully quickly. So Sahil Panwar, who missed uh, a couple of games, the games two and three of this series after a hit in game one, is eligible to return from a two-game suspension. So he'll be there for game four, the Bulldogs' leading scorer this year. On the Brant Clark situation, I think, Dan, this is a real litmus test for the Ontario Hockey League because not only are the Barry Colts a different team without Brant Clark, but Brant Clark is, frankly, Brant Clark. We all know what he's done in the league since returning to it this year. He's just the kind of player that the league would love to market in the playoffs. And when Brant Clark is not playing, it's not good for anybody, especially the Barry Colts. However, and that's my kind way of saying, but I don't think you can leave. I know you can't leave a knee on knee hit, the likes of which Brant Clark delivered on Lawson Shirk unpunished. I'm not going to pick on the character of Brant Clark. You're the one on the ice in the heat of the moment at the speed of the play, but that was definitely an extension of your leg into the leg of the opposing player. Knee on knee, the five in a game was deserved. The question becomes how long a suspension 
is issued. There has to be one here, I do believe. And I'm going to start the bidding at a mere two games, which I don't think is enough, but I'm going to use that on that's what was assessed to Panwar. That's what was assessed to Noah Morneau for batting a puck out of play. I know we're talking a different situation, but two games seems to be the playoff penalty so far. I think it should be in the three to five game range, but it's Brant Clark. It's the playoffs. I'll say he gets two. What say you? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard league officials theorize that a playoff game is worth two regular season games. So if you thought it was a four-game suspension the season, it's two in the playoffs. That's the So if we're working on that framework, I'm with you. Like, it shouldn't matter who the player is. Brant Clark's a great player. You want him in the lineup performing for the fans. The only thing that should come into play there is track record. Is he a repeat offender? Then maybe it's more. If not, he's a clean player, no history. Okay, that factors in as well. But I also don't like the results of the hit. It just was luck that Lawson Shirk was able to continue, uh, had no major injury. That just as easily could have been a blown-up leg, career-impacting. Reckless, full speed, leg out, both knees. Like, it had all the elements of what you really do want in that game. Um, so I, I'm not a great predictor here. I know that the uh, the OHL in the regular season has has erred on the side of more extreme punishment. But I, I think this one's got to be three, Mike. That's going to be where I'm setting the uh, the bidding at anyway. You mentioned Florian Jackeye as well. What makes you think that he may end up on the wrong side of supplemental discipline? Well, just uh, deemed a check to the head in that game and and also another, another uh, type of hit they're trying to get out of the game. This one admittedly didn't get the greatest angles and looks at this one, so... Uh, Determining whether or not I, I think there might be a game there. I'm not I'm not gonna suggest it's gonna be a whole lot more. I the Nolan Dillingham hit in the Sarnia series I thought was was far worse. I, I so I think if you're comparing the two, I would I would go Jack I a game and Dillingham to two to three. So you brought up Dillingham, which is another one we we have to talk about. And here's the interesting thing, and this is why like doubly the litmus test here for the Ontario Hockey League. You've got a, a star player in Brant Clark in one. And not to take anything away from Nolan Dillingham, but he's not quite Brant Clark. However, in both instances, Clark knee on knee with Lawson Shirk. Shirk comes back, finishes the game. Dillingham, blatantly, it seems to me, from the angles I've looked at, elbow to the head of Ryan McGuire, Ryan McGuire finishes the game. So those are good things. Like, it's good that the players haven't been seriously injured, but... I don't think, to your earlier point, you can allow the outcome to determine the severity of the penalty here. So, you know, the, the good outcome, I, I don't know. I'm really torn. Like, it makes me think back to the conversations that so many people in sports have had and say the suspension should match the length of time the injured player is out of the lineup. But then if you do that, well, then there are no suspensions here, right? So... Anyway, I, I'm with you. Again, I'm just going to stick with this is the bar that the league has set and and give Dillingham a pair of games, but whew, nasty stuff in that one. Yeah, and I'm, I'm totally with you on the the injury piece, Mike. Like that to me, that's like Russian roulette. And, you know, if you happen to get the bullet, tough luck. To me, it's the intent. How about we just take the gun away? And and that Dillingham hit had all the elements of a really severe incident. And I'm not indicting the player. I know he likes to play on the edge. But he's got a letter for a reason. He just plays hard. He's trying to he's trying to make them think twice about coming through the neutral zone with speed. But you cannot extend your arm, elbow into the head area at speed. That can devastate a player 
uh, for long term with with the traumatic brain injuries we're seeing. So I think, yeah, I, of all the things I saw in the weekend, Mike, I think this one's got got to be at least a couple. See, this takes me back to the conversation we had not too long ago around fighting in junior hockey and what the Quebec League's going to do. And just generally, it starts the conversation about fighting. And this is why I'm going to say again, honestly, I would I would frankly love, like, I'm sorry, Barry, and I'm sorry, Sarnia, although it would certainly hurt Barry if Brant Clark was gone more than it would hurt Sarnia just because of how deep that lineup is. But these are the kinds of things I would love to see penalized really severely. Because if you want to talk about things that can injure players, in the Dillingham case, a head injury, when we have fighting today, to go back to that previous conversation, it's basically a couple of guys who are willing to engage in the fisticuffs. And if we're being honest, what do they hit more of than anything else? A helmet or a visor. It's your hand that usually gets the worst of those things. So let's be really severe on these sorts of things so that if you're missing a hit in the neutral zone, your reflex move isn't to stick out your elbow and catch the guy in the head. I I would be okay. Like if Dillingham got five, in the playoffs for this. And the message was sent that way. If Brant Clark got five for this, even though it's the playoffs to your point earlier, the, the potential career threatening injury that could have resulted, I'd be okay with that because these are the kinds of things I want to see brought out of players brains. The penalty is so severe. I better pull up. I don't love that. They pull up on the end boards these days and on four checks, but in situations like this, if you've got in the back of your head, I better really keep it on the line here because otherwise I'm gone for five games in the playoffs. I'm good with that. Oh, I totally agree with you on this one. And especially when you're bringing the fighting dynamic. Yeah, sure. I don't love that. We're having teenagers punch each other in the head and we can talk about that, but at least those were willing combatants and said, you know, I'm going into this knowing that this might happen. With these hits, you come through the neutral zone. You're not saying, yeah, please, uh, I'm taking a chance getting through the neutral zone. My head might get blown up. So, and the other component too, if you're going to remove fighting, which is fine, you want to take fighting out, but then you're going to have to really penalize these types of things, Mike, because you talk about lack of recourse for these these types of hits and types of actions. Well, you know, he so he's not going to have to fight. That's one thing. But even if you only give him a game or two, What's that tell you? Yeah, you only sat out a game or two. Maybe we got a fourth liner that should maybe do that to your top liner. It's worth a game or two to get him out of the series. So I'm not saying that players think that way and do that, but it, it could happen. There's got to be strong deterrence. And in, in what we saw him with you, that make it hard. Yeah. And, you know, even as I, I say, let's give the player a reason to reconsider sticking out the leg or sticking out the elbow. That's really assuming a lot because, again, think about the game and what's happening. And and I'm not saying they're Neanderthals, they don't think. I'm just saying that's not even on your mind. But let me put this on. If you assign a five or an eight or a 10-game suspension to it, that shows that as a league, you take it really seriously. Oh, totally. Totally. And and I don't want the game to be soft. I want there to be physicality. You like to be big hits and whatnot, but you also, the, the goal of the game is not to devastate a player. It's not to put them on the injured shelf for a month or two or more or worse. So you, you got to balance that out too. Like your goal should never be to put the other player's health in jeopardy. So it's, it's to separate from the pockets. Yeah. And make him tentative about doing some of these things, maybe because he knows he's going to feel some pain, but there's a line there. And until, and the players have to understand that line clearly. And the only way to do that, Mike, is the way you're talking. 
All right. OHLVP Ted Baker has his work cut out for him in the next 24 to 48 hours to sort all of this out. And he's probably thinking to himself, oh, maybe I should have retired even sooner. Uh, this June will mark 35 years in the Ontario Hockey League for Ted Baker. He is going to retire from his role as VP. Let's just get this out. I mean, congratulations on a successful and long career. Uh, obviously, there's you don't stick around that long for nothing. So full marks to the long-serving Ontario Hockey League executive member, Ted Baker. The bizarre part of this for me, Dan, and it's been reported by Jeff Merrick at Sportsnet, and I'm just going to add this to that. Jeff Merrick was the guy that I think first reported that Philip Machar was going to be sent from the Montreal Canadiens to the Kitchener Rangers, and it didn't happen immediately. And then others started saying it's not going to happen, but Merrick stuck to his guns, and he was the one that turned out to be right. Merrick is reporting that upon the retirement of Ted Baker this June, one Mr. Barkley Branch, yes, of that Branch family, son of the commissioner, will be appointed as the vice president of the Ontario Hockey League. And I, for one, am truly flabbergasted by this. So uh, suggesting that the son of the long-term commissioner might not be the most qualified candidate? like. Uh... Well, there's that. And yeah. so I'll, t I'll tell you how naive I am, and I shouldn't be after being in this game for so long, but I have since found out exactly how naive I was. I, I just assumed that there would be a process of sorts, a hiring committee of sorts. There's none of that. Dave Branch can just do this. And and that, to me, is uh, uh, flabbergasting. I'll just, I'll leave it there for now because I don't want to disparage the man or the office, but I, I honestly don't know how you do this with a straight face. I don't. No, I, I'm with you. Like, the optics are, are horrible. <laughs> the, uh, to, for a league that's trying to stay on the radar as the premier development league and all the competition it's got, the optics are pretty poor when you don't suggest that you go to every length possible to find the best people available to run your league. And this isn't an indictment of Barkley Branch, but it's hard to convince anyone that the best candidate for the job is your own son. <laughs> um so the optics, the optics are just poor, Mike, but maybe, maybe they had an interview at the kitchen table over breakfast and, and Barkley said he answers his phone on weekends and that alone, that alone qualified him. So I don't know. I don't know. The optics are poor. The optics are beyond the pale from where I'm sitting. And I can only assume based on this, like if you've, if you've got the stones, frankly, to do this and you look around the Canadian hockey league and realize there's just been a change in commissioner in the queue. There's about to be a retirement in the dub. People have been asking for a little while since that was starting to, those stories were coming out. Well, how much longer for Dave Branch? He's been there 40 years. I can only assume that we'll go from one branch to another then as commissioner. And the thing that gets me is the board of governors in the OHL is powerless in this regard, they have no veto power over the commissioner doing this, which I I hope, I certainly hope there is a serious conversation at the Board of Governors meetings this summer 
to close this loophole, if you will, or to to rewrite a bylaw so that there has to be some sort of like we we talked about this in the context of discipline and and talked about a an arm's length committee panel that that analyzes things for suspensions etc and in that conversation we brought up the experience we've both had with nonprofit organizations i've i've sat on numerous boards and there's usually a a subcommittee of that board that makes these decisions that that helps to hire the the ceo which in this case would be the commissioner and the ohl reports to the board and and decisions get filtered through that board and then the board hires the next ceo for example it doesn't sound like any of those regulations apply in the ontario hockey league so the commissioner can appoint his own son as the the vp and then one would assume he becomes the next commissioner. I hope the board of governors is able to do something about this. Maybe Barkley Branch is the perfect person for the job. Have a committee make that decision. I, I, I've been a longtime supporter and fan of Dave Branch. I've said that on this podcast. I am, I am just gobsmacked by this. And, and I, I frankly, I'm sorry, Dave. I don't know how you sleep at night. I honestly do not know how you do. If you do, I, I couldn't do it. I love my kid. I'm not going to give her a job. Yeah, you know, you know, well, well said. There's not much I can add to that, Mike. Other than so that, you you describe the the process and the not for profits and the board and all this say that goes in. And the reason for that is accountability. You're accountable to a lot of people here. You're accountable to the families of players, to the players themselves, to the fans, to the franchises, to all those other board members. So there's all these layers of accountability. And I'll even add another one. This is an organization that received significant government funding through the pandemic. So you're accountable to the government for crying out loud. You're accountable to all these different people to do the right things. And one of those are would be giving all of the qualified interested candidates a fair shot at getting this job. And that certainly did not seem to happen. So I think there's there's a few questions that might need to be answered here, but I'm not sure answering questions has always been Mr. Branch's strength. Well, see, that's the thing. He's always answered them, maybe not as directly as you'd like, but with me, he's been very open and accessible. This is one of the reasons that I'm just so, I'm so blindsided by this. I honestly, and the more I, I learn about how it happens and the fact that there's no vetting or committee that has to approve this, the uh, the more stunned I am. Like I, I just try to put myself in that position. And again, as much as I love my kid, I, I could never personally, I couldn't. I couldn't do something like this. I'm going to take it even a step further and I'm going to tie it into the conversations that we've been having about hockey culture. Yes, I'm going there, but we all know that there is a necessary evolution underway. However, slowly we're getting there. We're starting to at least have these conversations. And this to me halts progress in its tracks in the Ontario hockey league. When you're just going to go from one branch to another as progressive as dave has been on issues over the years we need to this just speaks to the to the old boys club the closed circle that is the hockey community because you can just do something like this that's another thing that just dan my head hurts my head hurts right now i i give up honestly well, the term that comes to mind, Mike, is tone deaf. And and you're right, because regardless of the qualifications of his son, the optics are exactly what you just said. It's an in-crowd, it's an in-circle, and for anyone that's ever been cynical about the hockey culture over the past several years, and why wouldn't you be, it's that. 
like everyone knows someone who has been cut from a team because they didn't know the right people or someone who made the team because they did or had the right amount of money. And all this type of hiring does is reinforce that message that it's who you know, that's it. You're in or you're out. And he happened to be in. The right amount of money. Interesting you say that. Dan Mahar. Of course, we've still got prospects of the week to get to. Of course, we're going to talk about what we already knew. I mean, how many times have we told you who would host the 2024 Memorial Cup? And what about, like, along with the all too quiet for my liking, branch to branch scandal, if you will, let's call it Branchgate. I can't, I can't believe there's not more noise about this. There's also a little bit of noise out there about a pay to play scandal in the Ontario Hockey League. So Dan, Rick Westhead is reporting this one, and it sounds like some parents of players in the Greater Toronto Hockey League, the GTHL, paid as much as $30,000 to have their kids drafted into the Ontario Hockey League. Okay, well, I'm going to wait a second and let everyone raise their hand that's surprised. Yeah, so I'm not, not seeing any hands, so I'm I'm just going to jump right in there and, and say that verified or not, I know there's some questions, there's some pushback on, on Rick Westhead's story and say, don't necessarily believe everything you hear and, and question his sources, but everything most of us know about the hockey world, especially at the elite levels, especially in the big centers, tells me this jives exactly with how that game works and would not surprise me in the least if if this is occurring because i've heard similar size donations on players as low as single a uh just to make a team the parents cough up that much money to sponsor the team quote unquote um things like that That this has been going on forever in these circles and it just reinforces that hockey is not for necessarily for everyone it's it's a bit of a money game and and so i'm I have no sources on this, Mike, other than all the countless anecdotes we've heard, but this does not stun me in the least. And and why should it stun us in any way that there's pushback against the reporting, i.e. circling the wagons, based on the conversation we just had, where the wagons are clearly circled at the OHL's league offices? Yeah, and you know, Mike, this this is goes beyond just hockey for me because it's, it's everything. I'm not going to dive into politics and everything else, but I, I just would like society everyone involved to exercise a little bit of critical thinking and understand when you hear pushback on these stories and pushback on these things ask yourself who has who can gain from the pushback where's the pushback coming from let's vet these sources because i can guarantee you a lot of the pushback comes from the people whom this establishment benefits people that have the money people that can gain these these advantages through their their wealth and their connections so Obviously, there's going to be pushback, and it tends to be from people that have some wealth and power and influence. So, so I'm I'm not surprised there's pushback either, Mike. I just say if if I have to pick a side of this story, I'm I'm fairly uh, certain that Rick Westhead is not making this up. I feel as though, like so naive, my eyes are being opened more and more, and I don't know if I was just ignorant of it, blind to it. Uh, over all these years, but I I can tell you, like, from my perspective up in the gondola or the broadcast booth, I just, I, I was blissfully, 
blissfully unaware of things like this, certainly at levels below the Ontario Hockey League. And I, I love the OHL. I love major junior hockey. I'm a bigger fan of the game at this level than I am at the pro level these days. I've said that many times before. I still believe uh, in this game, but this is a this is a bit of a gut punch. And and one of the things it makes me think about is again, I'm not going to start naming names, and there will be more on this to come out. But if the if the rumors are true, the Ontario Hockey League seems to have a real problem when it comes to how it determines who gets to own a team. And basically it's just around, if you've got money, we'll let you into the league. And, and gosh, I would really hope that there is a, a better process for vetting. I mean, we've sung the praises of organizations like the Hamilton Bulldogs and Michael Andlauer and uh, the Lakenda family up in Sault Ste. Marie and what they do with the organization up there. And then you just get the, other stories that just make you shake your head and think how shady this whole thing is as long as you have enough zeros on the end of that check yeah it, it makes my skin crawl too mike and I, I i think about so i'm still questioning the the authenticity of this story let me tell you of all my years in hockey and seeing recruitment and players trying to make various levels a lot of those parents, those levels will stop at nothing to gain an advantage for their kids. So I don't know why anyone would think they wouldn't stop at giving money if they have it to get these advantages. So I think everything about it checks out. But the last point I wanted to make, Mike, is just what you were talking about with money is, so we do a lot these days around equity and diversity in hockey and in, in making it for everyone inclusion, which is all terrific initiatives. You want to see everyone from every community, every various genders, to you name it, we want to be have access to the game and be included and involved. But I don't know why that stops at wealth because if we really want to be inclusive, we want to make this game open for anyone of any economic level too. So if these parents really wanted to be inclusive, let your kid make it on their own merit. And if there's another kid that deserves it more based on their hockey abilities, then they should make it. It shouldn't, there shouldn't be any other factors involved. So if we truly want to make hockey inclusive, the money factor has to come in too. And we have to break down all of these structures that allow money to pave the way for people. You remind me of a headline I saw earlier today. It was, well, it was an op-ed. I didn't get a chance to read it, but it was entitled The Myth of Meritocracy. And I, I'm i not exactly unconvinced that there is such a thing as meritoc- a meritocracy anymore. I think if we're being honest here too, Dan, the big picture the the underlying issue here, if you can call it that, but is is money. Money is the root of all evil. Look, anybody that is going to spend thirty thousand bucks just to get their kid drafted into the Ontario Hockey League for a chance to get obviously to the next level, right? The pros and start getting paid. But when you look at the multi-million dollar contracts that are being signed in the National Hockey League. And I don't know how you I don't know how you square this circle because the argument is these entertainers make 10 times that kind of money for their owners. So they have to be compensated. But when you when you're a parent of a kid with even a, a modest amount of skill and you see 13 and 14 and 15 million dollar per year contracts being like any amount now is worth it because you think you might get it back down the road. And that's where the, the vicious cycle here continues in the game. Yeah. And, and Mike, I don't want to indict everyone that has money because there's some great people that have money, but the trouble with money is that 
$30,000 might be your eyes spending money for the next 10 years to others, to someone else, it might be their weekend plans. So for them kicking it in for, for this is nothing. And what money really does a lot in hockey circles and any sporting circles is money facilitates ego. And a lot of times ego is the biggest factor here. And in, in these parents and families just need to be able to say their kid was drafted or got into this school or, or had this level of prestige and, and ego causes some really bad things. And, and when you have ego combined with a lot of money, you get this stuff, Mike. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Sounds like the admissions scandal that rocked Hollywood in the, in the United States as well. All right. Uh, let's, let's move on to more positive things. Our prospects of the week still to come and look, I don't think there was any surprise, certainly not uh, within this podcast and, and the two of us, Dan. I, I loved the enthusiasm coming out of the Sioux, but I think very few were surprised that the Memorial Cup next year was awarded to the Saginaw Spirit. No, like you referenced, we called it, and I think it's the right call. I mean, all four of those cities had certain check marks in their favor that that would have been worthy hosts. Saginaw just had more. Saginaw, I mean, much deserving. It's never gone south of the border for a starting point. Great community and fan support there. Probably the biggest one. They're going to be the best team next year. So I, I think if anyone takes a rational look at this decision, they say they got it right. On roster alone, I think that should trump pretty much all of the other check marks. But there will be some renovation done uh, to create more room for private suites at the Dow Event Center. And I heard Craig Goslin from Saginaw talking about the plans and some of the work that's going to be done in the community as well to to beautify and create spaces for events to happen. So, yeah, it it just makes sense. But on roster alone, you want to make sure that you've got the best team on paper that's going to be able to to play host and be a competitive team through next year and into the playoffs. And, and everything is aligning in that way right now. Uh, for the Saginaw spirit. A couple of the other things I like about it, and I, I still hear the griping and I quite frankly don't understand it. Oh, it's the Ontario Hockey League. You're giving it to a team in the States. Well, these teams in the States have, have been in the league for quite some time and they've been in the dub for even longer. So let's return it to an American market. I've got zero issue with that. And the, the other neat part about this is it's the first time that the league has awarded it to a team that has drafted I want to emphasize drafted an exceptional player because I pointed that out on Twitter the other day and Jim Parker with the Windsor star reminded me that Sean day played for that 2017 Memorial cup team in Windsor. Now he was an exceptional player. The only one to not be drafted first overall went fourth to Mississauga traded over to Windsor for that Memorial cup. So a little bit of a different situation where Michael Misa obviously drafted by Saginaw in Saginaw where the Memorial cup will be played. But nonetheless, I think there are, other aspects of this to really like, including giving Saginaw as a market a chance at this and and giving the biggest stage you can possibly give to Michael Misa, who would obviously love to be the first overall pick the following year. Yeah, and Mike and Howie, and you touched on it, but these these territorial views that it's the interior hockey league, it should be in Canada. How about this? You do have three American markets out of the 20. And you recruit a lot of players from the, the States and you compete with the USHL and the NCAA. How about showcasing it south of the border as a really viable route for those kids and bringing some of that talent to the league? So, yeah, that that's a nonsense argument to me, Mike, that you need it, it has to be showcased in all of your markets, American or Canadian. They're part of the league. They absolutely belong and have a deserve a shot at it, just like you just said. 
All right, we've still got 16 teams playing in the Ontario Hockey League. By the time we are recording next week, there will probably be fewer teams playing. And so as the playoffs go on and younger players get less and less playing time, we are going to kind of morph our prospects of the week into a player of the week or a performer of the week kind of idea. But because there are still that many teams on the ice, we're going to stick to prospects. The The player that is eligible for this June's NHL draft that we think had the biggest impact over the past week. And we've both got our picks made. We never consult each other on these beforehand, but I'm confident in saying we're not going to have the same guy who you got Dansky. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad I'm not going to step on your toes then. Cause uh, yeah, as the playoffs go on, sometimes the 17 year olds get less ice time. So I look for the ones that are standing out for one more week here and, and my guy is Luca Pinelli on the Ottawa 67s. Five points in his first two games. Uh, kid's been consistent all year, and he's just intrigued me all season with his NHL draft ranking because where's he going to go? This, to me, is a guy that could go shockingly high, somewhere around where he's expected to go around the early in the second round, or it could fall because he's not the biggest player. But I think the performance he's put up consistently all year and now doing it in the playoffs – uh, Luca Pinelli is my guy, Mike, and I'm hoping he'll go a little higher than than ratings. Who have you got? What a great call by you. Luca Pinelli is my honorable mention for every reason that you just brought up and almost the reason I didn't pick him because I want to go kind of off the board here. It's a player that we've talked about before that I'm picking, but it's also showing my bias and wanting to identify something a little bit different. But you're so right on Pinelli. He was right there. He was on the tip of my tongue. And I thought, no, I'm going to go this way. And I'll tell you why I'm going this way with Carson Rakoff of the Kitchener Rangers. Now, he's gotten assists so far in this postseason in a couple of games. But the reason I'm going Rakoff's way is because I get asked a lot over the course of a season about Carson Rakoff. When he came into the Ontario Hockey League, he was touted as a future first rounder for the National Hockey League. There's still some of that talk. I suspect he'll go in the second. He's very likely to be a top 50 pick this June. But in all the conversations I have about Carson Rakoff, and I don't think I'm telling tales out of school if Carson's listening, though I doubt that he is, but it's always been he'll just, he'll almost tease you with the talent, right? Because he's got the skills. He's absolutely got the shot so these are the things that the scouts and the pro teams really like about a player and when you watch them people ask me a lot well why isn't it coming together for him what's missing tonight what what did you see when i wasn't seeing him because i was traveling somewhere else these are the scout conversations in game one versus the windsor spitfires to a lesser extent game two but in game one carson rakoff was everything Carson Rakoff was inside his own blue line more than I think I usually see him inside his own blue line in three games in a week. He was being physical. He's got a big frame and you love to see him use it. He did all of these things, Dan. He did all of the little things that you want to see a guy do as a well-rounded, fully developed player. And he showed his offensive prowess. So for that reason, I'm making Carson Rakoff my prospect of the week and just pointing it out that, hey, if you're a highly ranked prospect, and Carson Rakoff is, that's the kind of performance you can put in now and as long as you last in these playoffs, and you might go top 40 instead of top 50, or dare I even say top 30 instead of top 50. I'll just throw that out there. Yeah, no, I, I was actually just going to say that, Mike. I was going to say, here's a player that could go anywhere from 25 to 65 from what I've heard, and 
the playoffs might mean everything for him because he he's had a bit of an inconsistent year had slid people thinking that 45 to 50 range right now, but all it takes is one team to really like what they're seeing this week or next week. And that could jump up as high as yeah, 30, 32, somewhere in that range. So he's doing the things he needs to do if he wants to do that. All right. Uh, we gotta, we gotta move along. We've got more playoff hockey to watch. We've got to get you ready for your next episode of the OHL podcast, which will come out on Friday with our feature interview. The Sudbury Wolves are in tough in round number one, but they've been playing the Peterborough Peets tough, a former Wolf who's now working on helping players find their inner mental strength. He's working on that side of the game. And boy, oh boy, does he have some great stories. It's a great conversation coming up with a former Sudbury Wolf on Friday. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, I'm just thinking ahead, Dan. Like honestly, by next week, I, I said earlier, we're we're gonna have fewer teams. I wonder how many fewer. Like we might be done the first round by the time this episode comes out. Because the way I'm looking at it, there could be some game sevens on day of release, but we don't get seven game series. We might be talking about round two by next week. Yeah, there's gonna be eight eight to ten teams, Mike. So probably as few as possibly as few as eight. Yeah. Plenty to look forward to. Hope you enjoy the games wherever it is. You are watching them. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. You'll find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell at Farwell underscore OHL. And please do give us a like, uh, subscribe to the podcast, tell a friend about it, and send us an email anytime. OHL podcast at rogers.com. Do, did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.